2: The Queen, during her 70-year reign, travelled to almost every corner of the inhabited world, making nearly 100 state visits to countries from Nepal to Ethiopia, and charming world leaders across history. The Queen's most important meeting came in the Joint Happiness Garden, with China's top leader, Deng Xiaoping. Dung said that as a young man in Paris, he twice climbed the Eiffel Tower in hopes of seeing London, but it was too cloudy. The Queen
1: thought the distance too far for weather to matter.
2: I think that would be rather difficult. It's quite a long way. At her coronation in 1953, she was crowned Queen of not just the United Kingdom, but six other countries. Canada, Australia, New Zealand South Africa, Pakistan, and Ceylon, modern-day Sri Lanka. Over the next seven decades, the UK joined and left the European Union, went to wars in places like Malaya, the Falklands, the Gulf, the Balkans, Afghanistan, and Iraq. The Cold War loomed large, receded, and then returned. And all through that tumultuous period... The Queen was more than a constant witness. She played a vital role on the world stage as diplomat and ambassador.
1: A supreme test of her diplomatic good manners came on a trip to Morocco in 1980. The state visit got off to a bad start when she had to wait in her car for half an hour because the welcoming banquet wasn't ready.
3: As she addressed the Ugandan Parliament, the Queen was full of praise for what she'd seen.
2: As part of her visit to the German capital, Queen Elizabeth paid a visit to Berlin's Technical University. It was here 50 years ago that the monarch inaugurated the Queen's lectures. Today, we'll hear the private reflections of one former foreign secretary who traveled with the Queen and saw her interact with leaders like Presidents Barack Obama and Donald Trump to France's Francois Hollande, and witness the lighter moments too, like the Queen's introduction to the bowing goats of Amman. You're listening to Stories of Our Times from The Times and The Sunday Times. I'm Manveen Rana. Today, Queen Elizabeth II the Royal Diplomat. One person who witnessed the Queen making history on the world stage was the former Foreign Secretary and Times Columnist,
1: William Hague, Lord Hague of Richmond.
2: Lord Haig was Foreign Secretary from 2010 to 2014 and travelled with the Queen on a number of state visits. But he first spent time with her when he was a minister in John Major's government in the 1990s.
1: The first time I met the Queen, I'm now just struggling to remember, uh, but um, I particularly remember becoming a Privy councillor. So that's quite a forbidding occasion, really, where you're just desperate not to do anything wrong. And that, of course, is most people's experience of meeting the queen. Oh, I mustn't do anything wrong. Of course, if you serve in government for a long time, in roles that interact closely with the monarchy, like you get used to anybody, you get used to more normal conversations. And this included even with the queen. But the first time really is like that. Oh, I must remember how many steps to take, how to kneel on that stool, how not to fall over backwards, etc.
3: And there is that sort of that nervousness, that wanting to get it right. And you're right, even sort of world leaders feel it when they meet the Queen or did. What was she like as a person when you met her? I mean, was she aware that people would be very nervous?
1: Well, I think the Queen was always aware of that, although she'd never had anything else, of course. But she was also used to um, perfectly normal conversations. If you were on a long flight, as I was with her sometimes, you would spend a few hours having lunch and really talking and laughing as if it was a normal person. Now, most people can't imagine that. And it's the thing I will remember most fondly about the Queen is uh, really giggling, actually. Particularly with the Duke of Edinburgh, who made her laugh a lot. And that was part of their relationship. But you have to get used to somebody to be like that with them and they have to get used to you of course and realize that it's not a problem.
3: And what was her personality like in those private audiences where you could be yourself, where you could have proper conversations? I mean you mentioned her, her laughter. <laughs> did she have a, a great sense of humor?
1: Uh, she did have a self-deprecating sense of humor actually which suggested that she did have a sense of the ridiculous about things. It is my honour to offer toast to Your Majesty, Head of the Commonwealth and Queen of Canada. In so doing, I am deeply mindful of Your Majesty's long and tireless service to the Commonwealth.
0: Thank you, Mr Prime Minister of Canada, for making me feel so old.
1: (laughs) (laughs) On the state visit to Oman where the late Sultan of Oman became, over decades, a great friend of the Queen. The Sultan arranged for more than 2,000 horses and camels to parade for hours.
3: Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth attended this afternoon the equestrian show. After that, a pyramid formation was presented by a group of equestrians, and they carried the flags of the Sultanate and the United Kingdom.
1: Towards the end of this parade, The whole 2,000 approached the queen with two goats in front of them. And the goats bowed the exactly correct moment without any instruction or anybody doing anything to them. They'd obviously practiced this so much that, and fed the goats in this spot. The goats bowed. This is very impressive, of course. But, of course, on the plane afterwards, the queen was uh, finding that very funny and discussing how on earth such a thing came about. So I think she definitely had a sense of the ridiculous.
3: We've all been so used to watching the Queen as just a, a key part of state life and the life of the country here. You, in in your role as Foreign Secretary back in 2010 till 2014, you had the opportunity to really see her on the world stage and seeing her interact with world leaders and foreign dignitaries and to understand her role really in the foreign policy of this country. Tell us a bit about that. How important was she?
1: The Queen's role in foreign policy was important. It's very important for any nation to have the means of giving something the ultimate seal of approval. And the Queen was throughout her reign an important part of doing that. For me, the most visible demonstration of that was the state visit to Ireland in 2011. Now, this was the culmination of a quarter of a century of efforts to improve relations, starting with the Anglo-Irish Agreement way back in the 80s, then all through the efforts of successive administrations, culminating in in the Belfast Agreement, the Good Friday Agreement, The Queen visiting, however, and being the first monarch to actually set foot in Dublin since it wasn't part of the empire, the first since the partition of Ireland, was a bit risky politically and from a security angle, but it took that quarter of a century of effort and signed and sealed it. They've worked very hard to make this moment possible, and suitably dressed in emerald green, Her Majesty the Queen becomes the first British monarch to set foot in the Irish Republic. It showed that um, the political establishment and the people of both countries were completely committed to it. You can say that, as a politician, that relations have improved between Britain and Ireland, But if you actually saw the streets of Cork lined with people cheering the Queen and waving Union Jacks...
2: Alongside the Foreign Secretary, the royal couple unveiled a plaque in the market before walking out onto the street, met by hundreds of cheering children.
1: In Ireland, in very Republican Ireland, it's the Queen visiting that brought that out no prime minister could have brought that out
3: she'd sort of make it a moment in history i mean for example talking you know talking of ireland there was that phenomenal moment where she had to shake hands with martin McGuinness, and this is sort of after the good friday agreement this is after we all know that relations have sort of been normalized we have a power sharing government but that moment changed the way people looked at
1: sinn fein Definitely, yes. And again, this is another form of the Queen putting the seal on something. Because the Queen's done it, everybody can do it. And there's no excuse for anybody else to not take part in this. And so that that's a very important part of the Queen's role in foreign policy. And also to be disarming, to win the friendship of other countries. Again, on the state visit to Ireland at the state banquet when she began her speech in Irish. Argus Akoya. You know how people often say an audience gasped, but that really is a figure of speech. But in this case the audience actually gasped. I actually heard people all around me going huh? because they were just stunned they hadn't really expected it. The seriousness with which the Queen approached such occasions when she was giving an important speech that would be heard in the whole of another country, and the work that went into those speeches, which people noticed, you know, that really was part of Britain's soft power in the world. And I saw this again on the state visit to Paris in 2014, I was riding along down the Champs-Élysées in the car behind the Queen, and the crowds were shouting, Vive la Reine," for revolutionary France. <laughs> and it got rid of its monarchy in such a bloody way hundreds of years ago and I never wanted it back to be shouting, Long live the Queen. <laughs> that was great to see. But to go back to the point about speeches, when we came to the state banquet that evening, and the Queen spoke brilliant French, perfect French, So she was entirely able to deliver parts of her speech in French. Monsieur le Président, the Duke of Edinburgh and I are delighted to be here this evening on this, our fifth state visit to your country. Je me rappelle le plaisir que j'ai eu à découvrir ce beau pays pour la première fois et à cultiver à mon tour une grande affection pour le peuple français. But also the speech, which actually one of my own aides as Foreign Secretary worked on a lot, so impressed President Hollande that I was told on good authority, he ripped up his speech (laughs) and immediately told the Elysee to draft a new speech that was much more fulsome about relations with the UK and recognition of the Queen's long reign and so on. So the work that had gone into her speech, produced an elevation of effort from the president of France. So people sometimes think these speeches are just a technicality. In fact, that's not the case.
3: And with those speeches, when you were travelling with her, you know, particularly if she's having to deliver part of it in Irish, for example, would she be practising? Would you see her doing that? Or would she be nervous about having to know her lines?
1: I'm sure she did practise, but she didn't do it in front of her foreign secretary. The Queen always maintained a certain mystery... But she was always very well prepared. Before a state visit, I would sometimes go and have an audience with the Queen and talk about what we wanted to achieve. But she'd already read everything. And, of course, she had her own experience going back decades So she could say things like, I'm making up this example, but, oh, yeah, I remember discussing that with Eisenhower or Churchill. She would, in her conversation, reach back into the 1950s, covering 70 years of knowing leading figures in the world. And that meant that she didn't need much explanation. She could see things in that historical framework. I often had to brief her about matters to do with intelligence. But actually, I would find that she was thoroughly familiar with it, that she would like to discuss it a little bit and ask some questions about it. But she was familiar with it going back decades more than I was. So she really had that knowledge, which then, when interacting with other foreign heads of state, was really impressive to Mm -hmm. them.
3: It must have blown them away. I mean, was she, you know, just a really useful ambassador when you're trying to impress a foreign leader?
1: Well, hugely useful in the sense of everybody wanted to meet her. The ultimate accolade was to meet the Queen.
0: Well,
2: Your Majesty, you're looking well, uh, uh, taking into account your tight schedule. Tomorrow
1: I'm going to see 16 people. I may not look so good tomorrow. <laughs> so I remember one. Prime Minister of a Asia-Pacific country, which I visited as Foreign Secretary, and I'd gone to talk to him about all sorts of things, consular cooperation, the British nationals on a holiday in their country, trade issues, and so on. But what they really wanted to know was, when they came to London, could they have tea with the Queen? <laughs> that was really it. That was what they kept coming back to. Um, much more than all these other issues, or at least what they were really suggesting was these issues would all be a lot easier if they could have tea with the Queen. (laughs) So I arranged for them to have tea with the Queen. The Queen always played a willing part in that. And it's a really useful thing to dangle, you know, that if this meeting goes well, well, you might find yourself having tea with the Queen.
3: Yeah, a hugely useful part of the Foreign Office arsenal, I suppose. Did you enjoy the state visits?
1: She did seem to enjoy state visits a good deal because she was often talking to people who she'd met before. It was a sight that neither the gray skies nor the sprinkling rain could ruin. Her Majesty's yacht making a grand entrance into San Diego Harbor.
3: Escorted by a flotilla of small boats, Britannia sailed into Table Bay, bringing the queen on one of the great state occasions of her reign. Thousands of people lined Cape Town's waterfront. Many could remember the Queen's only other visit here, almost 50 years ago.
2: Colourful buntings decorated this religious town, all present in Amritsar to greet Queen Elizabeth and her husband, the Duke of Edinburgh, during their day-long visit. The royal couple had come to India from Pakistan and had been greeted with the correct protocol and necessary pomp and pageantry in Delhi.
1: And I think she did enjoy travel. However, always very clear that it was important to get back for certain things. Even after the state visit to France, we all got up very early to fly back so that she could go to the races. (laughs) Um, She wasn't going home to put her feet up. She was going to see her horses run. She retained a strong sense of personal priorities while carrying out these state duties.
3: And you mentioned just how useful it was to be able to dangle the prospect of an audience with the queen to foreign leaders and how she'd you know, have, have tea with them and it would, it, that, that would be something that, that would be the crowning glory of whatever deal you were doing. How was she in those meetings? I mean, did they all come away charmed and delighted?
1: Yes, I never heard of any meeting going wrong or never witnessed any meeting going wrong. And of course, the foreign heads of state who normally would create trouble would really behave with the Queen. Donald Trump is really a spectacular case.
0: A royal welcome for President Trump across the pond today. Queen Elizabeth greeted the President and First Lady at Buckingham Palace for the President's first official state visit to the UK.
1: He really took great care over conforming to her rules, not his own way of doing things. I attended the state banquet when President Trump visited at Buckingham Palace, and I sat next to one of his family at dinner who said, look at him. She said, this was your daughter. We've never seen him like this before. He's so determined to be on his best behaviour. He's put this new suit on. And he did look very uncomfortable in his white tie and coat tails, and he was moving about very gingerly. And clearly, people had said to him, all these instructions, you know, don't contradict her, don't touch her, don't walk in front of her, don't upset her. So all the things Donald Trump would normally do to people, which is upset (laughs) them, contradict them, walk in front of them, he wasn't doing. He was absolutely rigidly on his best behavior. He delivered his speech without any extemporization where he would, as you know, normally go way off script and say something outrageous. He stuck to every single word that was written down for him.
3: She has embodied the spirit of dignity, duty and patriotism that beats proudly in every British
0: heart.
1: And even his own family were stunned at this performance and said nobody else in the world had ever produced that reaction from him.
3: I I was told by somebody who worked for him at the time that he was so determined to meet the Queen and for his family to meet the Queen that they hadn't thought of who else might go to the state banquet. Nobody else was told until the day before when they suddenly had to find white tie in a hurry.
1: Some of them looked like they'd dressed in a hurry, yes.
3: (laughs) And talk us through that, because those state banquets were quite an important part really of foreign policy life. For those of us who haven't been to one, what is it like?
1: Well, our state banquets are held in Buckingham Palace or in Windsor, and both are extremely impressive. But he's, he's amazed by the size of everything. That's what me is. For the rooms. Yeah. Here's my daughter, Anne. Very nice to meet you. So now you've met quite a number of the family. Windsor actually is, in my view, the most impressive. St George's Hall there is um, done as a dining room at a single table for nearly a couple of hundred people. Now, not everybody appreciates that. And they think that Windsor is like the, the country cottage... And really, they ought to be at Buckingham Palace. I think in preparation for a Chinese state visit, they were quite upset with the idea that they might have to go to Windsor, as if, you know, out of town. Surely Buckingham Palace is head office. They really particularly wanted it to be Buckingham Palace. But in fact, Windsor was the Queen's real home, Mm. and uh, extraordinarily impressive for a state banquet. Now, of course, these things are very formalized, very traditional. It is the white tie, the medals, the military uniforms. You know, the staff have had the rulers out to measure the distance from each knife to each fork.
3: What Um, what are the meals like?
1: To a Yorkshireman, the meals are a bit small. (laughs) Uh, But the Queen was always very clear about not eating too much. From what I ever saw, Ate very sparingly, and no doubt one of the secrets of a long life. But those banquets are the cover for a lot of other discussion. Of course, scurrying around in the background and then talking late into the night are the foreign secretary, the defense secretary, the heads of the intelligence agencies with their counterparts. And sometimes presidents of the United States, like Trump or the other one I witnessed in this setting, President Obama take their lead from the Queen. And it was very clear at a state banquet for President Obama when I was Foreign Secretary that the Queen had told him there's a certain time where it all stops. And I give the signal, and I heard the Queen say to President Obama, well, it's time. And President Obama looked at me and said, is she serious? Is, is she telling me I've got to go to bed? And I said, well, there are, you know, you're in Buckingham Palace. There are no nightclubs here. So uh, it's the end. if she says it's the end of the evening, probably, Mr. President, it's time to go to bed. And she came back and she said, well, it is time. And that was the end of things. And he looked like he was ready for a big night out. (laughs) And, of course, he was on a five-hour different. It was only six o'clock in the evening as far as he was concerned. But he was left with very little option but to go off to bed.
3: She clearly had very warm relations with people like President Obama, though. I mean, was it just part of her charm?
1: Yes, I think she was completely trained to do that. I never saw her have any difficulty asking something relevant, remarking on some important feature of history that was important to those countries. But certainly in private audiences, the Queen can make points quite insistently. If she had an opinion, she knew what it was and would express it. However, this was always in the context of being constitutionally correct But of course, sometimes she could express a strong opinion about relations with a particular head of state or a monarch in a different country, making sure they got the proper recognition. Hmm. She would certainly be annoyed if ever she thought that somebody important to this country wasn't being treated in the right way. And she certainly felt very strongly about the Commonwealth.
0: Somebody asked me, had I been to Africa
1: before? which was nice of them to ask, but I did say that I had been everywhere in the Commonwealth in Africa and in other countries in Africa. I think I've seen more of Africa than almost anybody. The creation of the Commonwealth, being head of the Commonwealth, was absolutely fundamental to her reign.
3: We saw Barbados removing the queen as their head of state. Do you think her passing will be the end of an era for the Commonwealth?
1: The Caribbean island nation Barbados has become the world's newest republic, severing its colonial bonds with Britain nearly 400 years after the first boats arrived there. Well, I think the Commonwealth will carry on. There's the Commonwealth, more than 50 countries. And then there's the Queen's Realms, a smaller group of countries of which the Queen was head of state. And these are different things. And, of course, countries can opt to be a republic but to remain in the Commonwealth. Mm. It's the Commonwealth rather than the British monarch thing that is the way forward. And it is such a remarkable group of countries embracing an expanding proportion of the world's population. I think that will still succeed. I think the Commonwealth will still be there at the end of this century.
3: And in terms of that... When it comes to relations with world leaders, will it be the same, do you think, for a King Charles? I mean, is it about the crown or is it the person who, who wears it?
1: It's a mixture of the actual office and the person who holds it. But I think, you know, having also seen Prince of Wales at close quarters with foreign leaders and, indeed, Duke of Cambridge, no one need worry that there's going to be any um, difficulty in handling foreign relations in the future.
3: Finally, how will you remember her?
1: I will remember the Queen having lunch in a plane, laughing and joking. And me thinking, what would my mother think if she could see me sitting here today? But that side of the Queen, of a genuine sense of humour, that will be my predominant memory.
2: been listening to stories of our times a podcast brought to you thanks to the subscribers of the times and the sunday times with me manveen rana and my guest the former foreign secretary and times columnist william haig lord haig of richmond the producers today were edward drummond and olivia case the executive producer is kate ford and sound design was by david crackles thanks for listening see you tomorrow